So how, how is the sound level? That's okay, good. So far. <clears throat> so tonight, um, what I am going to talk about is the quality of mind, of heart, of faith, which um, is given uh, an, quite an importance in the, in the teachings, in the suttas. Last night, when he mentioned how all the aspects of the path work together, kind of come together and support one another. And as maybe you're seeing, and probably you all already knew anyway, that this path, this retreat, requires a huge commitment, doesn't it? Over and over. Not just a one-time commitment. You got here, you thought that was the big commitment. It wasn't even starting yet. this perseverance, this commitment, and with wise attitude, the commitment is simply to meet each arising moment fully, wholeheartedly, with open, interested attention, without wanting, without aversion. How do you do that, right? <laughs> how do you, how do any of us um, really cultivate that quality of energy, of effort, that we can continue to meet the moment. It takes a huge effort, but it's not the effort of wanting, of of pushing, of aversion. But where does this come from? What is it that that gives us this energy, this leads to mindfulness, to wisdom? And so um, the Buddha spoke often about five faculties, five spiritual faculties they're called, five specific qualities of mind and heart that we can experience, that we do experience, that we can recognize, that they kind of circle around and support each other. Sometimes they're talked about in a linear way, well, that's how our minds work, that's how we can talk. But the first one being faith, which um, is balanced with discerning wisdom is what gives us the energy to do. So there's faith, wisdom, I'm not saying them in order, energy, mindfulness, and collectedness of mind, concentration. These five qualities are the five qualities that are in balance. Whenever we're meditating, when the meditating mind is balanced, these five qualities are there. And one of the ways the Buddha talks about is the faith, sada in Pali, is often talked about as the first initiating of these qualities. It's the quality of mind and heart that you could say kickstarts the energy. It's the quality that um, opens us and gives us this confidence, this energy, this willingness to do, but from another um, motivation than wanting than aversion, than our usual me, 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 what can I get? So that's why I want to talk about sata. It's a um, beautiful quality of heart and mind. So the translation into English of faith, as with all English words, has a lot of different baggage and connotations for different people. Some people might find it a beautiful word But other people, one time we were teaching a retreat, I think it was at Spirit Rock, and 
one of us, one of the teachers, we talked about faith and someone said, humorously, but, you know, um, oh, you mean the F word. (laughs) So they weren't really thrilled, you know, to hear about faith. And so just to say from the beginning, this quality of sadha is not at all about um, believing in signing up to a certain set of beliefs, like the the faith the Buddha is talking about here is a quality of mind. Doesn't mean to be a card carrying Buddhist vipassana practitioner. You have to sign up to these certain set of beliefs, and that's what we're talking about with faith. I mean, to me, okay, the way I said it had a certain you know slant to it. But to me, that's more deadening than enlivening. And other people, uh, we all have different relationships to faith in, in our uh, personal histories. Sometimes it's a very supportive idea. Sometimes it's been um, the, the description of a certain set of beliefs that we felt has been put on us or had to um, follow that we have somehow come into reaction to. But here... As with, as far as I can tell, pretty much everything the Buddha taught, he's talking from a practical, experiential point of view. What qualities help us wake up? And the quality of faith, sada, is um, a mental state, a mental quality that we experience in our heart and mind that we can recognize. It's not about concepts or views or ideas, but it's a quality, the effect of which is that it uplifts and brightens the heart, brightens the mind. It brings in a sense of inspiration. So it's, it's, a, it's a quality that we can feel. It's described, the Abhidhamma, which is complex, but it has kind of nice descriptions of all of the different mental qualities, describes the function of sada, of faith, as to clarify, as a muddy lake becomes clear. And I'll say in a minute, I didn't used to quite understand that, but lately that's been making more sense. Or another function is to set forth, which is also the manifestation of uh, the manifestation, the way it shows up is again, it's non-fogginess of mind. So those of you who are just falling asleep, all the fogginess, a little inspiration of faith can sometimes, it brings a jolt of a waking up energy. Non-fogginess as removal of the hearts, the minds, uh, impurities, of those qualities that are causing us suffering in the moment. And as confidence, as resolution. Or as Saida Upandita describes it, faith, sada in the mind, gives us the willingness to do. And that's the next quality of the five faculties, virya, energy. So, to talk a bit about this sense of faith as a quality that uplifts, that brightens the heart, the mind, that energizes in a wholesome way, that clears it. It's a really uh, great thing to begin to tune into. And in a minute, I'll talk about seeing each for ourselves what does 
inspire this quality of faith, of inspiration. But how does it, how does it clear? How does it um, function as giving confidence? So in clearing, you could say in clarifying the muddy lake, in uh, clearing impurities of mind, so to say, it's as if it opens our heart, our mind, our views to another possibility. For most of us, I want to say all, but one one should never say all. (laughs) For most of us, the way that we live caught in confusion, in delusion, in not recognizing the way things are accurately, like when Joseph talked about impermanence the other night, it's not that that's something that's going to become true if we wake up, right? It's already true, but we don't recognize it accurately. And there's many ways that we live in a a world of concept, as when Andrea was talking about, and views that describe ourselves and describe the world that we don't even know. We just think this is how it is. And so we have a kind of... um, you know, we tend to consciously notice what fits our view, not notice what doesn't. And it's just a limitation on how we can experience the world, and that's what we think is possible for us, the vision for us. And so the sense of um, uplift, of inspiration that can come with faith is a kind of an opening of the mind, of the heart, past the, the limitations of the comfortable to, oh, to be open to the unknown, to be open to a vision, to a possibility we hadn't even thought of. And this doesn't have to just be in, in spiritual experience. I remember, um, I had it written down here, but I'd, I'd forgotten, but then I remembered when I looked at my notes, in 2008, um, right, right after uh, President Obama was elected for the first time. That did not seem like an age ago. <laughs> anyway, I remember the next morning after the election, and I, I can't remember if I was listening to the, the radio or I read this in the New York Times, but anyway, reporters, because there was a kind of, in, in, some, in many quarters, but certainly not everybody, I know, a kind of a, a real excitement, a euphoria almost. And anyway, this reporter had gone into, um, was, was interviewing young African-American women and men, like late teens and stuff. And I remember this one young woman that they talked to who had clearly um, had a very difficult life up to that time and hadn't really, didn't really feel that there were much possibility for her to go to school or to do anything that she wanted too much in life and really clearly um, from, as is so often the case, in, in living in a situation where opportunities weren't freely offered. But she was saying, oh, you know, it just gives me so much faith, so much inspiration that if he can be elected president, I can go to school and learn how to be a hairdresser. But it was really so, I don't know, it was so touching. This, sense, this is really the sense of confidence that comes with faith. The sense of opening past 
the, the views we held, you know, for good reason, but this is all, there's no, nothing much is possible for me. It's like, oh, there's another vision. And that faith, that opening, that uplifting energy of the mind or heart gives the confidence, the willingness to do. So in terms of talking about faith as um, one of the spiritual faculties, in terms of our practice here and in our whole life, the Buddha would often, often, when he would begin offering teachings to someone, there's lots of, of places in the suttas where he would begin the teachings by saying, okay, who could hear the Dhamma? But he realizes their mind isn't quite in the uplifted, open place for it. So he would give what he would call the step-by-step talk, graduated teachings. There's one sutta I like where the Buddha's um, surrounded by his sangha, nuns, monks, lay people. He's, he's teaching the Dhamma. And they said there's a, there's a, a poor, uh, sick, per- actually a leper, is a poor wretch of a person is how it's described in the suttas. And so he sees this crowd and he thinks, oh, maybe there's some food over there. Maybe if I go over there, I can get some food. So he goes over. So he's certainly not going to hear the, the good Dhamma. But he's just sitting there and he goes, oh, there's no food. It's just the Buddha talking. But okay, I'll sit here, you know, might as well listen. So the Buddha, who could, of course, tell what was in everyone's mind, looked out in the crowd and thinking, who here could hear the Dhamma? You know, where it could really go in. And he sees this guy, Supa Buddha, that was the, the sick guy's name, the poor leper's name. He could hear it. But he sees the mind is, is kind of closed. It's not in the uplifted, receptive place. And so he starts with a step-by-step talk, which he always starts by talking generosity, uh, the, the qualities of generosity, the qualities of, non, of non-harming conduct. And he goes through a whole list of renunciation, sen- the dangers of sense pleasures. And then, this is the language, when he perceived that the, his mind was ready uplifted, clear. Then he gave the teachings of particular to the Buddhas of the Four Noble Truths. And so this language, I think, to me, is the language that is, describes the quality of sada in our heart and mind. Just this sense the mind is it's uplifted, it's clear, it's flexible, it's open and ready to hear the Dhamma. So this is this quality of faith that's really essential to let us open and hear, to kind of just, oh, okay, what's it, what's going on here? So it's described as initially the talk about bright faith, that something usually external first, and maybe again and again, triggers this quality of uplift in our mind, in our heart, you know? And for each of us, there's been something, and there continues to be things, you know? This is, I'll talk about later, we can actually use as a contemplation, consciously contemplate, come back to what is it that can elicit this quality of sada in our mind, in our heart? So, like this, this young woman with thinking about President Obama being elected, But then the faith, the bright faith, isn't about putting some kind of that the truth is about that person. 
that I need that person to do it for me. What that bright faith, whether it's a, a person who inspires you or hearing the Dhamma or reading the Dhamma, whatever it might be for you. Um, it's not about putting the energy onto them, that quality of devotion, although devotion can be an aspect of faith. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's not giving over the power to any, anything outside. But it's that external stimulus that elicits that quality of brightness and uplift and openness in our own mind and heart. And so this is called bright faith. And as that gives us the energy to do, like maybe it gave that young woman, maybe she really did go to school and learn how to be a hairdresser. That would be the virya. And then the mindfulness and the, you know, the, the determination, the doing it. So as we uh, open with bright faith in terms of our dhamma practice, as we continue to practice, it becomes more and more what's called verified faith. It's not so dependent on that particular external stimuli because we we come to know for ourselves in deeper and deeper ways the truth of the Dhamma. But so even when we start with the bright faith, if it's not about putting it onto someone else, it's to elicit this willingness to do What the heck is it we're doing? How is it different from wanting? And this is where it gets to me really interesting. Because the faith, the confidence of this wholesome quality of sada, the confidence isn't about getting something we want or feeling good or getting the result we want or whatever. The confidence is really in the willingness to basically give ourselves wholeheartedly with awareness into this moment just as it is, without holding back, without having a so that. So it's not a, a willingness to do, if I do X, Y, Z in three days, I'm going to you know, be a stream enterer. I mean, our minds might think that, you know. But then we start practicing, and that is not the energy of faith. That's the energy of wanting. It feels really different. We'll flip back and forth, but you can really, wanting is not inspiring. It gives us energy to do. God knows, I mean, how much of our life, how many of the things have we done in our life come from wanting? A few, you know? (laughs) It gives us energy to do. But it's not opening, it's not uplifting, it's like narrowing and self-referencing and exhausting. (laughs) The energy of faith is quite different. So, the willingness to do, to meet this moment with our fullness of presence, with awareness, no matter what this moment is presenting. But there's different, a couple of different ways that faith might manifest for us because we're different personalities. So here I want to um, talk about the sense of devotion because for some people that really is the manifestation of faith for them. 
Remember we talked, um, well, the Buddha talks about two kinds of followers in the suttas. He talks about uh, Dhamma followers and faith followers, which I think is really interesting. The faith followers, he uses the word sada, faith, but I want to say in in the way he's talking about it, uh, I would substitute in English more devotion followers because both types have faith. So the Dhamma follower are disciples in whom the faculty of wisdom, of the five faculties, the wisdom, the discerning faculty is predominant. And though they develop the noble path with wisdom in the lead. Faith followers are disciples in whom the faculty of faith is predominant, and they develop the noble path with faith in the lead. But, he says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, so a wisdom follower is one, not an awakened person yet, but someone on the path, who has sufficiently gained a, a reflective acceptance and understanding of the teachings proclaimed by the Tathagata. So that could be, for example, I think I'm more that type where in my early years, a a lot of what I learned and what really inspired me came from reading suttas and came from reading a lot of the Buddhist teachings that I would get from Sri Lanka, from the Pali Tech Society, because actually I didn't know anybody else where I was living who knew anything about this. So it was that or nothing, but that saved my life. But I would say that was really inspiring to me it wasn't that I was, uh, you know, some awakened being, but reading and hearing the Dhamma in that way, it just made sense and went deeper and deeper. And it inspires faith, that sense of uplift. A faith follower, the way the Buddha describes it, is one who has sufficient faith in and love for the Tathagata, which is how he described himself. Both of these followers actually have all five faculties. So don't think it's one or the other. All of them have these five faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration or collectedness, and wisdom. And they all balance. So it's not that one or the other. But we can see in ourselves maybe a a predilection to move in one way or the other. So not to think there's a right or a wrong, to really see that. And so... This sense of um, the sense of devotion, I think, can be really appreciated if that's the type, if that's what lights up the energy for you. Looking and see for yourself. Remember, we talked. Maybe it was the opening night with Bonte about the this uh, meditation, Buddha Nupassana, where you just contemplate the qualities of the Buddha. And I was saying that in Burma, many of the nuns I know, that's their main practice. And it says that that doesn't, that, that, that practice in itself doesn't, uh, it doesn't, you know, I don't hate it or something, but it doesn't wake up this quality of energy. But being with the nuns who practice it, I can see for them it does. That when they're practicing this, they become quite radiant and uh, a lot of joy and incredible energy and commitment and confidence to live their lives as very simple renunciate and the ones I know, they're pretty tough lives. 
and very, living very simply, taking care, many of them, of a lot of little orphan girls or starting schools that they run for kids, poor kids, all on Donna every month. I mean, really amazing um, commitment. And I can see the inspiration, the faith that comes and how that feeds all these five faculties. And they then become a source of inspiration for me because what's cool is we can catch it from each other. So the, that particular practice doesn't inspire a lot of faith in me. But being with someone whose faith is up, that inspires faith in me. So there's a way we can use that with each other. But we're all different. Uh, last year, I think, I was teaching a retreat in, in Germany and a young man came and it was, he, he young German guy, he lived in Shanghai, um, in China. And he had in Shanghai just the previous year uh, had his first introduction to Buddhist practice. And I don't think there's so much Buddhist practice that's really uh, available in China. But he had gone to, he says, a five-day retreat uh, in the Pure Land Buddhist school. And he said it was uh, in a really ancient monastery with monks, Pure Land Chinese monks. And he said to him it was so inspiring he said, just the, the ancients quality. And they spent a lot of time together chanting and circumambulating, walking around the statues of the Buddha, chanting, and just the whole sense. He said it was just so spiritual, that aspect. It really brought up faith in him. And that gave him the, the energy, the confidence. So then he came back home to Germany and he was doing uh, an eight-day Vipassana retreat with us last year, his first real retreat like that. And he said, now, that, that um, devotional quality really inspired faith in him. But he said also, he didn't have any tools at all from that in terms of how to watch his mind or how to practice. And so then he found it opened him up to hear the Dhamma. And then he really was embracing, you know, mindfulness practice and the Four Noble Truths and all of that. And that's really kind of how it works. But there's other people that that's not going to be so inspiring. As I said, when I was reading the suttas, or when I first heard the First Noble Truth talked about, which, you know, when he mentioned it last night, I found that incredibly inspiring. It was like, oh yeah, this is how things are. Instead of people, oh yeah, it's going to be okay, you know, things will be okay, it just gets better and better, I think. But it isn't just getting better and better. <laughs> What's the matter? I should be happy, i got nothing to complain about. But, and then I heard the first noble truth, oh yeah, that makes total sense. Great faith would come up and that gives a confidence to practice. So it can be interesting for each of us and helpful to just look in your own experience, see what inspires you. And I found for myself, even as I say, I, I'm not the devotional type. Maybe that turns out not to be true. <laughs> Maybe it turns out what I'm seeing for myself is the two qualities of um, faith follower, devotion follower, and Dhamma follower, wisdom follower. It all ends up coming together one way or another. So for me, the devotion turns out to be not to a being, not to uh, particularly a sense of the memory of the Buddha, although I'm quite inspired by many uh, of my teachers. 
but the devotion turns out into a love of awareness itself, a complete confidence, complete love of the awareness of this moment, which can lead into when the awareness is more or less pure an embracing of this moment or not, (laughs) then you embrace that you're not embracing this moment, but a real sense of confidence in awareness, confidence in the Dhamma, that it reveals the truth. So I'll tell a little story that, um, for me, it personifies this. I don't know if it works for anyone else. So it was maybe, actually it's a long time ago now, 15 or 20 years, when I was... um, I think it was the first time that I visited uh, the Ramana Ashram in Tirvanamalai in, in southern India, in Tamil Nadu. And Ramana Maharshi, probably, well, if you don't know, he, was, he died in 1951. But he was really considered one of the, the great awakened being saints uh, of India in the last century. And he spent... Uh, all of his life from the time he was 16 until he died at the base of this, this small mountain, Arunachala, in this little village at the time of Tiruvannamalai. And the uh, ashram grew up around him, and he, he really, you know, from what one can tell, seemed quite awakened, very inspiring. So this ashram is still there, and it's very well maintained, very well managed, and um, there's a, like a, they call it a samadhi, it's a different use of the word than how we use it, which is kind of like the marble tomb of where he is in a big um, building around it. The, so the ashram is there at the base of the mountain, which is uh, kind of the mountain that is one of the things Ramana would say a lot is, you know, O Aranachala, you root out the ego of one who meditates on you in your heart. So it's a sense of really freedom from confusion from greed, hatred, and delusion. But so the ashram, it's, it's like honoring him, but it's not about just, oh, devotion to Ramana. It's really there to support all the people who come, which is millions of people over the years from all over the world, um, to wake up themselves. So it's not like a dead place like a museum. It's really, uh, you know, to wake up. And I say millions of people come there from all over. So every evening, there's a, a big hall, maybe bigger than this, and uh, where all the guests, we can sit along the side, and the men and women who, who kind of run the ashram come and do an hour's chanting. So you sit and listen. It's one of the things to do. You listen to the chanting. The Right behind is the open room with a samadhi, with Ramana's tomb there. And... Then after the chanting, you go to dinner. The chanting is led on the men's side, but the man who's the president of the ashram, who runs the place. And um, as the chanting is going on, and all through the day, people are walking around, circumambulating the, the tomb. And, you know, something one does when one's there. And watching people do it, all kinds of people, and myself included, you can see, as much as you can tell from looking at someone, all the different ways that people do that. Some really showy and prostrating around, and you can tell there's a kind of like a 
a wanting so much to feel the truth, to wake up, or, you know, you can just feel this energy. Some people just walking around chit-chatting, you know, just la-la-la-la-la-la, and then they go away. Some people are just, just so grim trying, you know, just so much different stuff. And I could see that in myself. There's times I'd just be walking around, but there's times I'm like, I have to really be present so I can wake up. Does that sound like anybody's walking meditation, <laughs> right? Just, ah, And it looks, you're really doing it, but the motivation isn't this upliftingness of faith. It's wanting. And it, they feel so different when you notice it, but we so slide into, ah, oh, i got to wake up. No, no, I spaced out in that moment. Oh, Ramana, Ramana. What can he do? He's gone, he's gone. You know, just like the Buddha, they're gone. What's here now? So all of that. So, you know, that was watching. Now, for this particular night, so the chanting ended, and every night the president of the ashram would go in and, and all the people, 200 people, so you go in, you sit on the floor in rows, and the president and the other people who run, run the ashram come and ladle out the food. So they serve every, every night and every lunch. They serve everybody your meal. So he finished the chanting, got up, just these very simple men, just got up, very simply walked around the tomb and went and served the dinner. No huff, no fluff, no big show, no prostrating. Just get up, walk around the samadhi, go serve dinner. Day after day after day, year after year after year. And to me, of course, I don't know how much is projection. I, I'm aware of that. But what it really said to me, this is to me the quality of devotion to just the simplicity of awareness in this moment. Just the simplicity of you get up, you walk around the samadhi, and you go serve dinner. And to me, that's really the devotion to the everyday simplicity and honesty of awareness. And that's, to me, really what we're cultivating here, not looking for a better experience, but you get up, you brush your teeth. You feel grumpy like Winnie said yesterday, or you feel great. It doesn't matter. You just get up and you notice how things are and you brush your teeth and you come and sit. You go wash the pots, you take a walk. Whatever it is, it's the awareness that the, the faith, the sada gives us the, the trust, the confidence to really open into. Doesn't matter what's happening, but the the sada, the faith, gives us the confidence to give ourselves completely to this moment, whatever it might happen to be, with nothing held back. This is a quotation from Ayakema, you know, who was a great German uh, nun and Buddhist teacher. And she's talking about faith. She says that the willingness to give ourselves to our path wholeheartedly. It's not a one-time decision. It keeps on deepening. This is like the verified faith. As long as we're still looking for a loophole, a loophole means like some way out, looking for some lasting happiness in this world, then our commitment to our spiritual path is not complete. This isn't about judging, it's just about looking and seeing. Okay, I'll open to this moment so that it gets better, right? You know, all the, I'm being mindful, but it didn't work. 
how often do we say that, right? It didn't work. What am I doing wrong? You know, it's mindful. Because it's supposed to get better. Only when we've realized that there is not another way out will we be ready to really give ourselves to the path. I, I don't say that so that you take that as a, as a way to put yourself down. Not at all. But more the sense of seeing, yeah. It deepens, it deepens. We don't have the confidence or the trust to just really give ourselves to awareness of whatever's happening when whatever's happening is difficult. Or it so doesn't match the unrecognized view we have of how things are supposed to be. I mean, Winnie last night was great when, when she was describing, you know, how we go, that, what the perfect day would be like. And we laugh, ha, 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 we don't really think that. Yeah, right, you know? <laughs> right, we wouldn't admit it, maybe. But when you get up grumpy and all the other way, back there it's like, I'm not giving myself completely to this. You know, you know no way. But the confidence the trust, the, the faith in awareness is that what starts to happen is the shift of motivation from wanting, from somehow looking for experience to affirm ourselves, to confirm ourselves, to give ourselves some sense of whatever importance or getting somewhere. Don't you want to know you're getting somewhere? This open awareness where you're just fluffing around, noticing whatever arises, and you're not having any experiences getting more clear. Doesn't that drive you crazy? <laughs> Don't you like want some proof you're getting somewhere? But the real surrender, where do you think you're going to get? Where is there besides this moment? There's nothing else besides this moment. Dogen Zenji, the great Zen master said, you know, if you can't find the truth right where you are, where do you expect to find it? So whatever's occurring in this moment, beautiful, difficult, a moment of faith, a moment of aversion, a moment of hearing, a moment of pain, this moment is the Dhamma speaking to us. It's nowhere else. And the the faith, this kind of uplifted quality of heart and mind, will give us the confidence again to, okay, it's like this right now. Just a kind of surrendering or giving ourselves into this moment, nothing held back, not in order for something better to happen, but because it's right here. And what's really, for me, what starts to shift and get stronger and stronger is that this devotion or this quality of Dhamma follower, either way, it starts to be that the, the trust, the confidence in the awareness, the mindfulness is more trustworthy and more interesting than our habit of liking and disliking whatever it is that's occurring. Our habit of getting entranced by our aversion and our greed and our self-stories, those things will still come but we get more interested in the awareness. It just feels so much more reliable and true and freeing and always accessible when we remember. Awareness isn't just accessible when pleasant things are happening or when unpleasant things are happening. It's whenever we remember. 
So this is the shift from expecting or thinking we know to just when we start loving awareness itself, that's my language, then we don't keep evaluating by the quality of what's happening. And then we can start to see that, you know, all of our six sense experiences, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, physical sensations, and then the whole mental realm, thoughts, emotions, moods, those are the six sense experiences. It's just occurring, you know, over, over, over those six things. All of them, any of them, serves to re-trigger our recognition of awareness. There's nothing outside of it. We don't have to wait for a better experience. And this gets to be really so cool because you can sit down and be having just the most awful, useless sitting. I know we always tell you no sitting's useless, but don't you feel like some of them are useless? And you're Jesus, I'm just sitting here and it's restless and it's foggy and I'm sleepy and what's the point? I might as well just be in bed, you know, it'd be more pleasant, that's for sure. Useless. And then we say, you come in and tell us and we say, oh, but there's awareness of fogginess. And you go, thanks a lot. (laughs) I needed you to tell me that, you know. Right. But we mean it. We mean it. And just so you know, if you're on my interview list, I'm going to keep on saying that the whole time. You don't even have to come because that's what I'm going to tell you. You tell me something, something, oh yeah, and there's awareness of that. That's so far out. Because there'll be over and over again that shift where you're sitting there foggy and, and then go, oh, awareness of fogginess, right? Awareness of fogginess. And there's this love of awareness will come, just for that moment. You see, awareness doesn't care if it's aware of foggy or aware of bliss. Awareness isn't like better. We can be aware of anything. So just starting by something simple. I had this example written down, just, just, I'll just use it. So I was at home washing a teacup. I'm a little bit attached to my two perfect teacups, I have to say. And so I don't want to break them. When people stay in my house, I put them up high. I said, use anything you want, but not those two teacups. So we wouldn't dare. We wouldn't touch them. So I was washing my teacup this one day and just very carefully. And then I became aware. I was being really mindful, mindful of the movements of the teacup. But I wasn't noticing the attitude in the mind. So the mindfulness wasn't like, wasn't like, the mind, it was mindfulness with the attitude of wanting. I was being very careful with my movements because I didn't want to break the teacup. Do you get a sense of how we're mindful in order to? So that's like a, that's a sort of mindfulness, but not really, it's not the mindfulness of faith. It's not the virya that just dies into what's happening. It was the wanting. So, okay, there's kalatia, there's there's the, the torment in the mind of greed that I didn't see. So I'm mindful. But all of a sudden, I became aware of the greed. Our tendency could be, oh, I'm not being mindful good enough because there's greed. And I said, you know, okay, that's aversion. Mindful, oh, awareness, but what happened? Oh, that's greed. Oh, yeah, look at that. That's greed. 
And then the awareness of greed, the awareness becomes more interesting. It starts to grow and gain its own momentum. So it wasn't like I said, oh, I have to really love awareness here. Here's awareness. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's greed. Oh, yeah, greed is like this. That's how greed feels in the body. That's awareness of greed. And then I notice the next thing, and then the mindfulness just starts to, again, get its own momentum. Anything, everything that occurs can be, again, the trigger back into awareness. That's why we talk so much about the continuity it's not to gain them. It's like, you think you've wasted half the day, like when he was saying, if you're not walking, you're wasting half the day. But then you suddenly wake up. You're drinking tea, your 17th cup of tea of the day, and it's only 10 in the morning. <laughs> but suddenly you become aware. Oh, yeah. You feel a sensation. You're drinking the tea. You notice the absolute disgust. I can't stand another, another sip of tea. It's disgusting. I'm going to float away. Oh, aversion's like that. And then you touch, like you palpably feel the awareness. It's like, great, here we are again. And then that awareness leads to the steadiness of mindfulness. It starts to get its own momentum. That's the concentration. And then the wisdom, the clear seeing, the recognition of what's wholesome, what's onward leading, what's not. That's not an act of will. That comes by itself. So this example I'm making up, the 17th cup of tea, the disgusting, something, oh, I really don't need any more tea right now. And you get up and you go, I think I'll just do walking meditation. Really with that tone of voice, not with judgment, not with blame. Oh yeah, wisdom sees this is really more supportive of my awakening right now. I'll get up and walk. And you'll see that happening more and more and more as the retreat goes on. We say it gets a little bit easier to remember to be mindful. Where in the beginning at every... At the end of every walking pass, you, you're trying to think, do I need to go to the bathroom yet? No, not yet. I have to do another one. <laughs> and after, you know, a couple of weeks, you don't even think about it anymore. It's happening naturally. But notice this. Notice how the, the faith, the confidence brings a, the energy, the willingness to do, and then we start to love the awareness. The mindfulness gets its own momentum. The mind steadies and the wisdom comes, you see more clearly. And that again cycles around and feeds the faith, feeds the uplifting quality. And so it keeps spiraling deeper and deeper. And we need that. We need that recommitment because it does get difficult, right? It's difficult in the beginning. It gets difficult in different ways as we go on. Because this sada virya, one one of the descriptions of virya, which is energy, is the quality of mind, of heart, that does not shrink back. Shrink means to kind of pull back from the difficult. So when something difficult happens, there's that uplifting of faith that gives fear, okay, I can surrender into this moment too, with awareness, rather than, no, okay, I can surrender into this. Because it does get difficult in different ways. We have to keep finding that faith again, that recommitment. Stephen Batchelor once talking about uh, emptiness, kind of emptiness, the sense of self, the sense of awakening. He said, emptiness is not just an experience of oceanic bliss. It is a falling apart of all of our strategies of self-interest, of self-centeredness, and seeming protection. And although it is freeing, 
at times it also brings up great um, disconcertion. It feels very uncomfortable, confusing. Like being in no man's land, you know. We're not in the realm of the familiar. We can't quite figure it out the way we're used to doing. And so then, again, we may call on faith to give us the uplift, to give us the energy, this too, not to shrink back. So I just want to say, just the last thing, that when you're finding it's at a difficult time, you're noticing it's hard, your mind is shrinking back, you can actually consciously use conscious reflections on what does bring up faith, inspiration, in your heart, in your mind. And even though this is a, 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 a deliberate contemplation, it can be very useful when we feel that the energy is really getting lost, when we feel like, what am I doing this for? What, you know, am I picking up and putting down my foot? Why? To feel the sensations? Why? Who cares? You ever have a moment like that? I do often. Then I'll just do it again because the faith is really natural and then it goes away. But sometimes we need to call up. So look and see for yourself. Think about it. What has inspired you, uplifted you, brought you to this path? And there can be different things. Like for, for me, often I'll think about the teachers I've had, the people in my life in different ways, and they don't have to be Buddhist teachers, but that have exhibited some quality of compassion, of wakefulness, that when I think of them, that upliftedness, that energy, that openness, that willingness to do comes into my heart, into my mind. Sense of gratitude, sense of inspiration. Or sometimes we can't find it even in ourselves. And so then what I have found uh, unexpectedly started to occur for me one time when I was on retreat in Burma, when it was a really kind of a really difficult retreat, is getting quite caught in some heavy mental states. And just trying to think of my own teachers or what's inspired me, just, I just didn't cut it, you know, couldn't get there because the, the, the heaviness of the, the mental state was too strong. But then in a situation like this, because we catch it from each other, we actually can use the external surroundings, use the sense of sangha, where you see there's no way we're doing this in isolation. You may wish you were in more isolation, but we're not in isolation. And we really support one another. That is one of the meanings of sangha. So I noticed on this retreat in Burma how well the people who were running the retreat center were taking care of us all. So many yogis from Burma and all different countries. The, the great generosity and metta with which the people who were working in the kitchen would do everything they could to satisfy people's little needs, the amount of care and kindness and metta that was just all around supporting me. And that actually uplifted my mind and heart, brought back faith, brought back openness. So I would say sometimes if you're here and feeling that and you notice another fellow meditator and, you know, sometimes you can just just feel that they're in the flow, you know, or it looks like it. Of course, we never really know 
but like Joseph or someone was saying, you can tell when someone's just spacing around and you can tell when someone's just really there in that moment. And say, oh, right. There really is a point to this. It can brighten our mind and heart. Or I look around and notice the great generosity and metta from the staff, the care that goes into just look at the flower arrangements, you know. It's dying, they put up some new beautiful arrangements. Somebody put great metta and generosity into that. Just, just look around and let it in, you know. It doesn't take much because it then elicits that quality in our own mind and heart. And then again, there's the energy to do, to take the next step, to notice the next thing, to bring awareness to this sense of shame or fear or aversion. And I'm not just making up this as something I thought was a good idea. The Buddha also talks about it. There's one sutta, it's actually given to nuns. Ananda is talking to nuns and then he and the Buddha are talking together. So I'm going to paraphrase it a bit. But the Buddha is saying, here a nun, a monk abides, you may recognize this phrase, contemplating body in the body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Do you remember Andrea talking about that phrase? So he's saying, they're just in the four foundations, away, leading away from the unhappiness that comes from wanting the things of the world. And as one is abiding, contemplating the four foundations of mindfulness, it could happen that a bodily sensation arises, a distress or a mental sluggishness or a mental distress. So the Buddha is saying, this could arise that scatters the mind that gets us confused. So he recognizes this happens. And so he says, you're practicing a bodily distress, a mental sluggishness, a mental distress arises and your mind gets completely scattered and lost. And so he says, at that time, the nun, the monk can direct her mind to some inspiring image. The word is image. And he gives the, you know, the example of using the image of the Buddha. But I'm going to just substitute here for whatever elicits faith in you. You can actually consciously then, you're completely scattered, you're lost. It's one way uh, that we can use metta, as Winnie was talking about. Metta for many people, just the quality of metta inspires and opens the mind and heart. Or it can be contemplating or just bringing up some inspiring person, inspiring teacher, some of the examples I gave but really to contemplate what brings up faith in you. So do this for some time. And as this happens, you start to see that the sluggishness recedes, the distress recedes. He says happiness is born. From this happiness, from this joyful mind, the body relaxes. A relaxed body feels content. Just in case you thought we were like making up this relaxation stuff, This is the Buddha. Joyful mind relaxes the body. A relaxed body feels content. The mind of one content becomes collected. She then can reflect the purpose for which I directed my attention to an inspiring recollection has been served so I can withdraw my attention from that. And that's called directed meditation. And then I just withdraw my attention from that and don't direct the mind to anything in particular. 
just notice whatever's arising. Back to our mindfulness practice. So this is from the Buddha. Using the sense of faith, and then it leads through all the five faculties to wisdom and keeps on spiraling deeper into faith. So I think that's enough. Let's just sit quietly for a moment.